It's been a fun couple of years, man. I, I only started doing episodic in um, May of 2017. Um, wow. So before that, I had a whole life from when I graduated in May of 99 until May of 2017, 18 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, 99 is a great year for American movies, though. That's a hell of a year oh, to graduate. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, look, you got Royal Tenenbaums, you got Fight Club, you got Three Kings. Sure. It was, I think it was a time where most of the studios were being bought by larger conglomerates and a lot of projects fell through the cracks. And so those really, those $50 million indie films just kind of somehow had money flowing week by week. And then you have a lot, I mean, I've got a handful, Magnolia. Sure, you know, being John Sony, Malkovich. Being John yeah. Malkovich, yeah, yeah. yeah. Matt was a critical studies major at USC. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His so. main skill is naming movies that came out in a certain year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about the director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. What's up, folks? This is Pete Chapman, welcoming you to episode 11 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. We we hit double digits last week with episode 10, 10 Commandments for Episodic Directors, where we were joined by director Tahir Jeter and director Erica Watson. And we went through uh, the principles I've learned on how uh, you can really make the most of any episode that you're directing, comedy or drama, first time returning to a show, uh, premium cable, broadcast, whatever it may be, streaming, uh, just 10 principles, commandments that can help you elevate your game as a director that totally apply to film, music, video, commercial, but I just wanted to anchor it in episodic. Um, And today we offer you another special episode uh, for a very good reason. Our producer and editor, Tristan Nash, is enjoying a very important milestone in his life. And we figured he should have that time and uh, enjoy uh, something that, you know, comes around once. So um, we are bringing to you an interview that I did with the Just Shoot It podcast, which is run by two talented filmmakers, Oren Kaplan and Matt Enlow. And uh, I suggest you check theirs out. Uh, Clearly shooting is a popular term. They're just shoot it, we're let's shoot. And so their episode with me was called Let's Just Shoot It with Pete Chapman. And we have a great conversation on the technical aspects of directing my journey. Um, And much like last week, you get three filmmakers in a room and you're just gonna get an opportunity to be a fly on the wall for something um, that you might not normally get to hear uh, other directors talk about. So enjoy episode 11. This is me featured on the Just Shoot It podcast with Matt Enlow and Oren Kaplan. I'll catch you on the other side. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Action. 
Hey, welcome to the 228th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Jared Scotton and Curtis Ratliff. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we are talking with Pete Chapman. He is a director that has skyrocketed in television in an insane way. He just directed Blackish, Grownish, Mythic Quest, A Million Little Things, Silicon Valley, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Insecure, Atypical, just every show you've heard of. Obviously, more of a comedy bent, but he's done all sorts of things. He did Station 19 recently, and he also has a podcast called Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, which like, come on. Pete, we already have a podcast called Just Shoot It. I guess we should call this episode Let's Just Shoot It. With Pete Chapman. Yeah. And his podcast does have some pretty cool guests, I'm not going to lie. It's had Rob McElhaney, Issa Rae. Yeah, again, he's one of those stories where it, at first glance you think, oh man, this guy's an overnight success. Obviously, he's been grinding away for years and years and years and has just recently popped, but he's using his connections uh, with the different directors and showrunners that he's been working with for a long time to come on and talk about the craft just like us. So we thought, oh, what a perfect collaboration we would have. Yeah. Um, these two podcasts. And I want to just give a quick shout out to Stefan Dezel, who's been a previous guest who works at Superlative. Uh, where I'm repped as a commercial director, and that's where Pete Chapman is also. And so that's how we met him. So thanks, Steph, for hooking us up with Pete. Yeah, thanks, Steph. We recorded this kind of a while ago, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. over a month ago, I think. Well, he's got so many great guests that it was a little tricky to squeeze us in. Um, but I think that in the time since we've talked, I think a lot of things have changed in terms of the COVID of it all. But I think we stay pretty darn focused on uh, the the craft and career trajectory of a television director and how Pete really zeroed in on what it takes to be specifically a television director. And so all of that insight and um, those connections, I think, are things people will enjoy about this episode and all of his other episodes as well. Yeah, lots of awesome tidbits and a lot of knowledge dropped. Speaking of dropping things, I just want to remind people that we have a Patreon page where you can drop a couple bucks a month if you are into the podcast. The website is patreon.com slash justshootitpod. If you get something out of the podcast, it just helps us pay for some server fees, some editing, you know, all that stuff. All the stuff. You know, we've been making this show for 228 episodes, and I think you finally got great at Transitions, Oren. That was a, that was a killer segue, man. Thanks. That was um, so. a uh, plug-in I got. Uh, it's a <laughs> podcast audio transition sure. plug-in I sure. downloaded <laughs> from yeah, SoundCloud. Yeah, you, you pirated. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Don't pirate. Hey, is pirating Love. even still a word? Low, lowercase p. Pirate. I'm trying before I'm buying a couple pieces of software, but you know, I am proud to say that Nowadays, most of my software that I work with on a professional level is paid for. Well, thanks to the Patreon subscribers, <laughs> we're keeping Oren on the up and up, just like this podcast. Thanks for all your help. Go to patreon.com slash justshootitpod if you want to throw us a couple bucks. And for 10 bucks, you get a hat. It's pretty dope. Also, all Patreon subscribers get 20% off our tea public. So if you wanted that Just Shoot It Pod t-shirt, we're basically selling it to you at cost. I saw someone on the street wearing one the other day. Did you really? Yes, in a photo that they posted on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm, I don't walk on the street in big public places that true. much nowadays. Though I hear other people are doing it. Yeah, the rumors are true. Uh, well, let's uh, hop into our conversation with Pete Chapman. 
So Pete has his own podcast. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman. And I was just listening to your episode with Issa Ray, And uh, yeah, you talked about what mainstream feature films tell us about racism as it all kind of ended in the 1960s. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought football a- solved it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it's just that. I mean, I love I love there's a beauty in a biopic. There's a beauty in a period piece. But there's also if the only thing telling you what's going on in today's world is the nightly news. And we know that there's a slant there. You're going to be left with a little bit of misrepresentation or underrepresentation. Let me let me put it like that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what what comes out of these moments now with and even outside of funding, like who grabs the reins and says, well, let me go make my own thing, you know? Yeah. And I know, I mean, two shows that I watched religiously that I know have been super popular the last few years are Insecure and Blackish. And I think what's interesting about them is they are kind of about the nuance of racism, not just, you know, like what we think of from, you know, from the sixties. Um, yeah. and those are both shows that you've directed. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's been a fun couple of years, man. I, I only started doing episodic in, um, the first thing I did was in May of 2017. Um, wow. so before that I had a whole life from when I graduated in May of 99 until May of 2017, 18 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, 99 is a great year for American movies though. That's a hell of a year oh, to graduate. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, look, you got Royal Tenenbaums, you got Fight Club, you got Three Kings. Sure. You the got Matrix, I think as Ma- well. Yeah. One of them. Right. Part, right around part there, something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I read a, I read a book about that. That was interesting because it was, it's like, you don't realize it until you go back and you look at it. Like I was talking to my wife earlier, like the, in, in the 1920s, people weren't like, this is the roaring twenties. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure, yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> they like hit the depression and they were like, yo, the twenties were kind of fucking dope. Um, and it, it was I think it was a time where most of the studios were being bought by larger conglomerates and a lot of projects fell through the cracks. And so those really those 50 million dollar indie films just kind of somehow had money flowing week by week. And then you have a lot. I mean, I've got a handful of Magnolia. Sure. You know, being John somebody, Malkovich. Being John yeah. Malkovich. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Stuff. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Matt was a critical studies major at USC. So. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His so. main skill is naming movies that came out in a certain year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um, just, uh, uh, I majored in nerdiness. Um, but Pete, sorry, I got us off track. Uh, you Wait, so you graduated in 99 and you're, you first started directing TV in 2017, 18 years later. Correct. And that was when you got into the DGA and everything, right? I got into the DGA. Funny story, and it'll be brief, but I did a podcast in 2011 uh, with Issa Rae. I made my living doing branded content from like 2009 until 2006, 2017, really. And so I interviewed her in 2011 after she did her Kickstarter campaign. I saw her maybe two or three times in New Orleans at Essence Music Fest, where she was beginning to go as like a kind of influencer and I was doing videos for Instagram and I got hired to do the show within the show for season two of Insecure, which was called Due North. And I mean, that was what got me into the DGA. I got to direct Scott Foley and Regina Hall and Michael J. White. And I later learned that they didn't think that I would actually be able to make the day. I did about 13 pages 
in 10 hours. Um, yeah. And they were like, oh, he did that shit. And uh, it helped me get the episode in season three that I actually directed for the show. Well, that's a perfect segue of us asking you what prepared you to get those 13 pages in oh, a day. Man. Like what? So what happened from 99 to 2017? I mean, I'm a guy who is, I don't, well, I do complain, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, but I don't like end with the complaint. And so I know that I have to self-generate. So for me, I always wanted to direct. I only started writing because I had nothing to direct. I started producing because I needed money and coordination for the thing that I would direct that I wrote. And so along the way, you know, I made a feature, I made several shorts, and then I did the branded content so I can make money. And, you know, you just kind of learn how to do things with limited resources. And I feel like as unexciting as that may be, as far as what you would like you, everybody wants to be Kubrick or Fincher and on take, you know, 40 of like getting out of a car. But when you recognize that you can make something very specifically with limited resources, I think you actually become better because you don't look to money to solve problems. And so when I stepped into these television opportunities, I found myself being able to benefit from what I did as an independent filmmaker. Yeah, it's it's almost like you had that baby step, right, of like doing a super challenging thing, but kind of like you said, the show within the show. And so like rising to that occasion made everyone acknowledge like, oh, of course, the, he can do it. Like he's, a, he's the guy for the job. And then all of a sudden you're doing all sorts of TV shows. And quite as it's kept, you know, there was a reason why um, they had had a scenario with a with a season one director that did not go that well and made it kind of a blanket policy that they would not hire a first-time director again. So I kind of got, I had interviewed for a season two episode and I didn't get it. And this is on Insecure you're talking about? Right, right. And so this is a thing that people, I feel like the thing that's really important for directors to acknowledge is you kind of have to hop up to 10,000 feet and look at who you are with open eyes. And so like, I know like if, if I was attached to a film and then somebody was like, yo, we got Spike Lee, I, I would gracefully back out and I, I would understand why now you're going in that direction. And so when you come in as a first time TV director, you could have, you could have made two features like I had, you could have done a bunch of shorts, but as far as television, you haven't done it before and you're almost like a newborn baby again. And so people are apprehensive and anxious and hesitant to put you in a position of, you know, being the person at the top of a call sheet for five to six million dollars. And so if we're honest about that, you kind of know that you really have to do as much work as possible and get people comfortable to the idea that you can bring an episode home on time and, and on budget. Well, do you think your features helped establish that? Like, did the people that hired you for Insecure watch your movies? Issa had, was familiar with the movies. But, like, the funny thing is that I, as far as it goes now, because I'm, I'm now pitching TV shows and I'm writing a feature that I'll be pitching, and the industry doesn't know me as a feature director. As far as the way it works, they're familiar with me for the thing that they're familiar with me for. And so the the features are like, oh, you do films? And it's like... I'll have a probably a new hurdle of getting into that in the same way of um, 
like at first I was focused on getting half hour single camera comedies, putting a little bit of a flag in the ground on that and then transitioning to one hour dramas because I was just like, everything's been really methodical because I know that there's nothing but fear and insecurity in considering who you hire for a show. Let's dig in a little bit on that because I, I love so much about what you said there about being methodical and, you know, metaphorically planting a flag in the sand. What specifically did you do to start in scripted half hours? And then how did you pivot into the hour long dramas? So after two feature films, I did a feature romantic dramedy called Premium and it came out in 07 after writing it in 99. So there's a whole long story there. And then I did a feature documentary on the first Black tankers in World War II that Andre Brower narrated. And so I had this kind of feature legacy and I had the production company, which was growing. And I was watching a friend of mine, his name is Seath Mann, and he had uh, been a graduate student at NYU director. He had gone through a few of the diversity directing programs, and he's one of the few people who transitioned into actually working. And so I watched him do, I had him on my old podcast, and he he was on a show called Complications while he was at in the Disney ABC program. And that show Complications became a mid-season replacement and had its name changed to Grey's Anatomy. And so he did two episodes of that show and then he did The Wire and then Heroes and Medium. And, and now he's done five episodes of Homeland and he's got a, you know, sure. 12 episodes. Yeah, yeah. yeah now, now, he, now he's in, well, now he's in Atlanta and he did uh, this, this show Free Ray Sean on Quibi. And so I was watching this kind of happen and I was like, man, I'm interested in, here's a thoughtful filmmaker making personal stories who found a way to go from like indie film guy to like TV guy and operate in dramas and comedy and broadcast and premium cable. And so I was like, well, let me follow the path. And so in 2014, there was a study by the DGA that basically looked at all the directors that had been hired in the prior year. And I believe, I don't want to use numbers that are incorrect, but I'm pretty sure that of about 800 directors across all the available episodes the prior year, only 7% weren't white males. And so the studios were like, okay, we'll make, we'll create these programs to at least create a pipeline to become familiar with people that we might not be looking at. And so I did four of those programs. And, you know, the irony is that the first job that I booked was actually Blackish. And I had met Kenya Barris in 2002 when I had come out to LA raising money for my feature. And so anyhow, those those programs gave me an opportunity to kind of learn how TV was made. I shadowed on like 10 different shows. Um, I met a bunch of different executives and I basically kind of applied like a men in black mind wipe to myself and said, just be humble, just lose expectation and just take these opportunities for what they are, which is a learning experience on how TV is made and an opportunity to meet people. And I really think because I approached it like that, I was able to transition into getting the jobs. Uh, every show, that, almost every show I shadowed, I booked. So I, I, I shadowed on Silicon Valley. I booked that show four years later. I shadowed on um, Grey's Anatomy. I've done two of those. Blackish, I've done four of those. I did the show Greenleaf. 
I shadowed on ballers. I didn't do any of those, but um, it was just a, a great opportunity for me to learn the process because TV is so much different from film, from feature filmmaking. Well, two kind of interesting things you just said. So about being humble, you mean that in terms of like a guy that's already done this feature film with Zoe Saldana, this documentary, award-winning documentary. Did you go through that mode where you're like, I should, these people should be calling me, you know, <laughs> like, why am I going up to them and being like, please teach me what, how to be a filmmaker? Yeah, man. I mean, I, I feel like the analogy I use often is that unfortunately what we all do as filmmakers and storytellers is it's subjective, right? Like if, if, you know, if Matt was at a D1 school and Oren, you were at a D1 school and I was at a D2 school, but like we both all, all three of us put up 25 points and 10 rebounds a game, we would all get drafted. It's like inarguable, right? But when it comes to stories, you're then dealing with whether or not they resonate with people. And I feel that I had to say, okay, it is what it is. I've done these things. They haven't amounted to what I thought they would. And I had to do a lot of deprogramming in all honesty, because like I had been told if you go to Sundance with a short thesis film from NYU, then you've made it. And then I was told, well, if you raise 600K to make a feature film, well, then you've made it. And that wasn't the yeah. case. You and know? was Zoe Saldana, was she pretty well known when you made that movie? Right after we wrapped, she went to do Star Trek. So yeah. like it was, it was, and in my thesis film, I had Carrie Washington, like right before she, oh, well. she started to propel. You've got an eye for talent. Um, you know, it's so funny. <laughs> I feel like we've been doing this show for a long time and that story is so familiar and it bums me yeah. out every single time. You know what I mean? It's like, it's this oh, thing you where make this awesome movie you and made, you made the awesome happened. movie. And yeah. And it's just like, I guess we want to believe that there's distinctive answer. Like, okay, like if you do these things, then you don't have to worry about getting the next gig. But like, well, do you think it, that's just I, not true? You know, do you think it has something to do with like timing, obviously, and the genre too? Cause you look at like JD Dillard who made basically one pretty low budget movie and now he's doing like a star Wars, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors that, and that's the thing. Like, I feel like you can get in, into analysis paralysis, you know what I mean? And I feel like it just becomes more important to, as I kind of transitioned out of my bitter years of and when I was like, I've done X, Y, Z, why isn't it happening? And I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to make four passion projects a year, one per quarter. And that is what propelled me to the short film that got me into the TV programs. So th that's that's the like rose colored glasses answer. Right. But when Can you if tell I, what, what were your parameters for those passion projects, like short films? It was I mean, look, man, it was like there was one where we went to my mom's house in Virginia for the 4th of July and my nephew was maybe three years old. And I was like, I'm going to film this whole shit from his perspective. So the whole thing is like E.T., you know what I mean? And and I'm going to be low angle and just living through this weekend like I was three years old. And I'm just I'm like, all right, let me work a particular muscle. And I heard a interview with somebody. I'm a big basketball fan. And this guy was talking about Kobe Bryant. And he said we were in high school and I, I, I met Kobe and Kobe was like, Yo, I don't know why you're playing pickup basketball. Like, that's a waste of your time. Go to the, if you play a game of pickup, you're going to get what, five shots? 
but you can go to the gym for three hours and work on your skills. And I was like, that's fucking true. And so like, it, it was kind of like, if I can work on a short film and just work on a particular perspective, or maybe I'll edit something and I'll, I'll be focused on parallel action. And those like exercises, I can, I can literally point to things I've done in little things like that, that have helped me when I've come to a particular episode five years later. And is it conscious? Is it, is it like, okay, this quarter, I really, I would just, I'm going to focus on, you know, point of view for storytelling or parallel action or whatever. Is it, it's that conscious. It's like, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Or I'm, yeah, I'm going to shoot so this good. thing with, um, you know, I'm not a great DP, but I can shoot with my, at that time, a, a Canon C300 and I'm just going to be handheld and I'm going to, have to be racking focus and and let's see what happens. And you kind of discover something where you're like, oh, that's interesting. And I remember when my buddy Seath that I just mentioned, who had done an episode of Homeland, and I remember watching that episode and saying, wow, it's crazy looking at how the DSLR technology is filtering into premium cable because they didn't fucking put any ND filters on anything like the whole this like cafe was like all blown out and I was like I think that's because they've just come to accept that people will watch that now by virtue of DSLR <laughs> and and so this little thing that you're trying is helping you become more fluent in in being a director yeah for sure yeah even like handheld and watching things out of focus and the racking focus and all that stuff that used to be considered sloppy is now stylized yeah now right? now, you're, now you're like a sought after guy because you can't yeah. hold focus for two <laughs> seconds <laughs> yeah um, or even I, like you watch modern family and you're like this is the one of the most traditional sitcoms ever sure. and then you realize like it's all shot like handheld and pants yeah, yeah. And crazy yeah. you know visual language yeah there, there's one other thing i want to point out about what you just said earlier pete so you shadowed on Silicon Valley and then four years later got an episode. Talk to us a little bit about that process. How'd you follow up? How'd you make that happen? Man, so so when I did that, the short that I did, Black Card, was picked up by HBO and uh, had a short window, short licensing window, but it's, it, it showed on HBO. And the woman who was kind of instrumental in that as far as talent development was like, hey, do you want to shadow? Her name's Kelly Edwards. And she was like, do you want to shadow on Silicon? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, that of was, course. Of, of course. And that was season three. And so do you, can you say which director you were shadowing? I shadowed uh, Charlie McDowell. Um, so oh. he's, his, his dad is Malcolm McDowell. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and his mom uh, is Mary Steenburgen, right? <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. uh, right now I know he, he I think he's done a, a bunch of episodes of, uh, on becoming a God in central, um, in central Florida and dear white people and some great films on Netflix. So he was, he was super cool. Yeah. He and made the one I love, which is the one I love. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, Ted Danson is his, uh, stepfather. And so, yeah, we, so I shadowed on that and then I kept in touch with, so the guy who was my point of contact when I was shadowing was uh, Jim Cleverweiss. And so I believe at that time he might've been line producer and may, maybe UPM. So I kept in touch with him, you know, after uh, that, I did a digital uh, web series for ABC and Viola Davis's company called American Coco. Wait, can yeah. I ask you a really dumb question or it might might seem dumb? But like when you say kept in touch, are you like 
emailing him and saying like, hey, man, I made this short. Hey, man, I just did this episode. Hey, man, like, how's it going? Or I saw you won an award. Like, congratulations. I know people are listening and they're like, oh, I met this person, but I don't know what to like, say. Should to I text them? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so to so to anybody listening, I think, you know, people say networking and I always say scratch that nurturing. You're nurturing these relationships. And so, you know, part of that is how can I continue to make them aware of me as an individual in the world without it being a burden filled exchange? So that's like, oh, I saw the episode that I shadowed on. The shit was dope. I'm, I, I, okay, I wouldn't say it like that, but, um, you know, it was great. But, and, but you kind of um, could, you know what I mean? Like if it's like a personal relationship, like it's right. sometimes it's nice to be a little casual You're right. rather than like, you know, to whom it concerns. You know, I, I <laughs> right. saw your, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, like four score, seven years. <laughs> so like, you know, like I would do things like that. I'd say, you know, maybe... Um, you know, he uh, I don't want to I don't want to reveal the payoff of this story too early, but maybe he moves to another show and it's like, oh, the pilot was great. Or uh, sometimes people are involved with shows that don't move forward. But like I'll get my hand on a pilot and be like, yo, pilot was awesome. I bet you I bet you could kill it. I love what you're exploring here. Um, but then maybe the fourth exchange is this digital web series I did is now live on abc.com. Check it out. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I learned a lot from you during our conversations, you know? And I think it's like, how can I just be a person? And also how can I build a real relationship with folks? So when I do maybe come back for the like direct ask, I have three touch points where it was not requiring them to reply. And so I don't look like a guy who only wants something. Right. Yeah. It's not like, oh, great. Here comes Pete again, heading us up. Right. right. Yeah. What's crazy is like Matt and I would kill to direct, you know, any a tenth of what you're directing. And we've interviewed so many TV directors and they all kind of say the same thing, like 10 years of relationships, meeting producers and network execs and actors and people that end up. Um, you know, Paul Briganti is someone we've had on the show that's done Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. He was just friends with the act, you know, the actress slash creator. And and then also most of them have shadowed a ton. Yet Matt and I have, do neither one of those things. <laughs> but also, but like, but it's also like, I mean, I can I could literally tell you how I got every job I've gotten. Like I can track the two or three like major people or most kind of consequential people in that particular job. But like on my first episode of my podcast, my buddy Theo Travers, like he did all of these things for like 10, 11 years. And then at a party, he meets Matt Carnahan, who created House of Lies. And that's how he got to be a staff writer. So And now six years later, they're out pitching a show together. And it literally is just like, I think we all know, like when you're on set, I want to do the math. And when we get back in a post-COVID world, I'll maybe look at my dailies. But um, I feel like you're on set 13 to 14 hours a day. But when you look at your dailies from um, pics or whatever account you get them from, you probably have 35 to 40 minutes of footage. And so for the other 12 hours and 20 minutes or 13 hours and 20 minutes, it's really just a matter of like, do they want to be around you? You know, and... 
if you can master that part and then you're talented on top of it, that's like just, that's all like icing on the cake. But there are plenty of people who are just sufficiently competent who have long careers because they're likable. That's what I'm banking on. (laughs) I don't know if you've gotten that down yet. Um, uh, So you've done like 30 episodes of TV at this point in like three years, which is insane. By my math, that's like 40 episodes a year. Um, (laughs) So are you at a place yet where people are like you're you're turning down TV jobs because you have like people are calling you you now? You must be too busy now, right? I mean, post pre-COVID, right? Yeah, Yeah. pre-COVID. I mean, you know what it is? The thing that changes is that you get email offers. That's been the difference. Like before it was like, all right, let me go meet with the showrunner. Now, let me go meet with the network. I'll right, swing now, by set. I'll shake some hands. Exactly. Kiss some butt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and then um, you just get a text. The other side of it, though, too, in that same like conversation of being able to track where the work comes from, um, the job that I got shut down on, so to speak, when uh, on March 12th, I was directing, I was prepping to direct the season finale of All Rise on CBS. And the number one on that call sheet, Simone Missick, was number two on my call sheet for my short film, Black Card, in 2014. Yeah. And so that's exactly what we want to hear on this podcast. That is the best. Did she recommend you or did she kind of confirm that you should be hired? She told the producing director and EPs that they should meet with me. We met. I prepared for the meeting very well. I watched everything. And honestly, it was a thing where it was like, oh, well, I, I, where I was not available in December and January for the episode that they were kind of thinking of for me. And I don't know how it worked out, but as time went on, they were like, okay, fine. We'll give him the season finale. And I think that has something to do with number one, like vouching. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, I, I think awesome. I, the thing that's important to point out, though, is that you can build all of these great connections and you can watch them rise. But Pete, you had done the work so that she didn't have to worry about putting you up for the job. Right. You already had a couple episodes under your belt. You were doing great already. So then it's an easy yes. So it's not that it's really hard for people to ride each other's coattails unless you're leveling up. At more or less the same speed. You know what I mean? It's really hard to be like, oh, my old roommate from college, he's so funny. Trust me, he'll do a great <laughs> job, you know, unless they they have, you know, the resume to back it up, basically. That's super true. And that, and that goes back to the whole value of like, well, as, if I'm out here creating, like I'm going to meet new people, but then the people I already know are going to have more currency with which to present me to the folks that they're building relationships with. Right. It's almost like they're your reps, right? Like, you know, your agent or your manager, they're pitching you. You need to give them something to pitch right. you with. Exactly. Now, I guess you're saying, think of everyone you're working with as like a person that if you show them your stuff, they might, you know, vouch for you too. But they don't have to be your agent or your manager. Yeah. I think Every, sometimes... Everyone talks. Yeah. I think about how I've worked with all these like incredible actors like years ago before they were accomplished. And uh, we made a lot of like bad stuff together, you know, on DVX 100s and stuff. And I'm like, I wonder if they would ever vouch for me when the stuff we made, we had a great time making it, but it's not like you could show it to anyone, you know? Right, right, right. But, you know, but that's the that's the thing. Like, I mean, I'm working on a short film right now and, 
you know, my wife is going to um, star in it. I have a gentleman in my building who is a very well-known actor, like character actor. I'm trying to get it to someone I've worked with on a TV show who's super big and he's friends with that guy. And that's kind of also the point of like doing the TV, like how can I take what I learned here and bring it back to the things that most interested me in getting into the industry? Yeah, I love that. You're you're doing 200 episodes of television a year and you're still, <laughs> but you're still making short films. Do you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. think that like the principle of the passion projects being your calling card is always going to be the case. That's great. I'd love to like dip into the craft for a second because on your interview, and again, pe people, you should check out Pete's podcast. Obviously he talks with really amazing filmmakers also about filmmaking. But one of the things you said to Issa Rae was that you have pretty much four ways to shoot a TV show. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I'd love to hear what those four ways are. Is that something you oh, man. down to share? Well, so the thing is, like, I feel like whatever it is you're doing as a director, you have to remember, like, the goal, right? So, like, so, and not not to me it may seem like i'm going to get long-winded but i'm but i'm not but like in the beginning it was like i'm going to focus only on these half hour single camera comedies because what my research and conversations are telling me is that if i show that i can tell a joke i can make the hop to being given the keys to telling dramatic stories and data supported it whether you were an actor and you were jamie fox going from booty call to ray or you were Adam McKay going from Anchorman to the big short succession. And so... Uh, sorry, Pete, can I ask, the, the branded content that you were doing, the way you were making a living, was that comedic as well? Was that kind of sort was, of helping? It was mostly no? doc. Gotcha, okay. But, gotcha. So but that it was didn't super, help... It helped me... Resume-wise, Deal with people. Mm -hmm. It helped me <laughs> deal with people, and it helped me understand the dynamic of working on something that's not mine. Because like, you know, I do cover girl stuff and they'd be like, the bottle must always be at a 45 degree angle. Right. Sure. And and right. so like I I under I was like, okay, I get what I'm here to do. And when I go to these TV shows, I'm kind of doing a similar thing, but with scripts. And so I did the comedies to get to the dramas. Now I'm doing comedies and dramas to kind of target pilots. Um, and all of this is en route to selling my own projects and also getting back to feature films. And so pilots are more of a space where people are looking for a filmmaker, right? You're, they're looking for you to kind of set the tone, design the look of a show. And that is a lot different of a muscle than showing up in replicating. And Issa and I talked about this on my episode, on episode two of my show, where it was like, you know, there are folks who do broadcasts and could hop onto a cable show. And they're like, what's your perspective? And they're like, master 50-50 over close up. And they're like, no, how do you actually want to shoot it? And they may not have ever had that muscle or they've lost it. For me, I don't want to lose it. Or so. it's been beaten out of them. Honestly. It's been beaten out of them. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. They're like, they had the, the 99th time they presented a good idea and they were like, well, where's the, I, I mean, when I was in a program, actually, I, I won't name it, but I, I shot something in a particular way and they were, the executives were like, well, 
where's the matching? Like you put a you put a single on this person, but you only have an over on this person on this side of it. And I was like, yeah, that's because that person's isolation is more important. And they were like, you got to give me you got to give me the over. And I was like, OK, fine. I I get it. And they're you know, like, deliver I, us all of the ingredients. We're going right. to make it what we want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. So so we can destroy your vision. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm kidding. Kind of. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> you know, it was kind of like, well, I don't want to not think like that. So the first pass is like, if this were mine, I would do it like this. And then the second one is like, okay, they probably don't want that. And how can I maintain the integrity of that, but make it quicker and simpler? And then after that, it'll fall into like more of like, what are my additional like third and fourth options on how I might block this? So if the actors bump up against how I'm envisioning the scene, I have an idea because I feel like the last thing you want to do is it's all about collaboration, but I think if you've thought it out, you will arrive at something that you haven't been coerced into. That makes sense. So like basically you can pitch when you're on set and someone's like, well, why would you put the camera here? All the action is happening over there. You're already prepared to say like, yeah, but really the moment is about what the, the you know, the reactions of the people, not actually what's happening, right? Right, right, exactly. That's cool. Yeah, I do... You think of a show like Blackish or Grownish that do have this real kind of specific visual. You know, they're very colorful, they're very poppy, they're bright, but then you still see episodes where the filmmaking is really kind of revolutionary, like in a way that you would never, you know, film a sitcom. But it seems to me like in a show like that, you probably are not messing around too much with like the lighting and the colors, but you're messing around more with the camera movement and the editing and the pacing. Right. And then there might be a show like an insecure or um, something that leans a little more drama, you know, where you can do like a long lens master from like two rooms away. Right. It's interesting, though. I I, honestly one of my favorite I've I've never actually copped to this, but one of the favorite things I've actually done is in an episode of Grownish. But it was episode 112, the second to last episode of season one. And the Zoe character is kind of in between. Aaron and Luca and trying to figure out what she wants. And I, I designed this whole thing that was basically like all this camera coordination and like the actors were kind of popping up in different places within the bar that they go to in the college. And it was, it was like one time where I was like, look, okay, no, this is this shot. Okay. Next shot is this next shot is this next shot is that. And it was more of like making a feature film. Um, and it was super specific, but then they, um, I got an email from the showrunner, like after they got my cut and she, and it was like all caps, like you fucking killed it. And it was like, it was a very big choice that, um, I felt comfortable making because the first episode I did for them, I had incorporated this kind of, uh, I shot it in slow motion, knowing that they could ramp it, but also knowing that they could deliver it at 24 and they ramped it and then it kind of became something that was the language for the rest of the season. So it kind of gave me a little conf- more confidence to be like, I'm going to I'm going to put you in a in a corner here. But if anything, you can still run it 24 and cut around it normally. And it's one of the like coolest sequences I think I've been able to, to shoot. And my DP on that, Paula Widobro, was my DP on Insecure and she shoots Barry. 
So like, again, relationships, you know? Uh, well, I can't wait for your episode of, uh, of Barry Pete. Um, <laughs> uh, let me ask actually kind of like, again, sort of a, a political career question. When you were doing the kind of the orchestration of that episode, did you run it by people? Do you feel like they understood what you were trying to do? How much did you feel like you had to keep everyone in the loop? How well did they really get what you were aiming for? Walk us through that a little bit. That's a great question. Um, so to the directors out there, what I began to do, particularly in the beginning, I'm ready to do it now, but I don't necessarily have to all the time because I've gotten enough episodes where people are kind of more comfortable, but I share my shot list and my blocking diagrams with the AD and with the DP um, and sometimes with the script supervisor. So they know during prep that I'm prepared. And the amount of like, like exhale that I get from the crew is priceless, particularly when you're new, they kind of relax. And then that kind of floats up, that goes up the chain. And then the line producer and UPM and the showrunner, they know like, okay, I'm not going to be getting calls about lack of preparation on day one. So I think that's a useful thing to do. And it's kind of against what we normally do as feature filmmakers. I had to arrive at this place because I was anti it on a couple jobs and people talk shit about me. Wait, anti what? Anti making like sharing like, your shot like list sharing, sharing, sharing the shot list. Oh interesting. And like yeah. I made like I made 10 page days every day. But because I was like, I'm not sharing a shot list, they were like kind of, you know, and I was like, wow. So okay, I get that there's a comfort that comes from that. And and I have to always hop back up here and say, you know what? That's a fair and realistic feeling to have. If it was my show and I hired so-and-so director, I want to be eating my bagel knowing that there's a fucking shot list too. <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, so so there's that. And you know, the other thing though, I think, is there's an authority in asking questions. And so, you know, like I did a station 19 in February, it had more effects than I had ever done. And I would often be like, all right, guys, I don't know what those acronyms mean. And <laughs> can you slow down and talk to me like I'm five years old, because it will help me do my job and hopefully help us collaborate. And then I remember the VFX guys in the meeting, he was like, I just want to say this is the most prepared a director has ever been in three seasons. And it was because I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Right, <laughs> right. So, you had to prepare. Yeah, I had to you prepare. You can't wing it when it, you don't know what a, you know, ARC is or whatever, you know. Exactly. And <laughs> so that's that's the character arc, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, oh, uh, everyone knows what yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so ask. I would ask like yeah. what what are you guys looking for in this scene? Okay, like what makes you really happy about this episode when I deliver my cut? What should I be like what are you most concerned about? And like then like the showrunner and the writer will kind of reveal to you their anxieties, but also their hopes. And then that lets me know, OK, I can do a little something more in this scene because they like looked me in my eye and told me, you know, they want it. Like I, I did a mixed dish in February as well. And there it's like a it follows a storyline of like uh, of Rainbow being introduced to homelessness. And I was like they kept recounting like they wanted it to feel different. And I was like, okay, how do you feel about handheld? Like, it? okay, how do you feel about this? And so I took that 
to the DP. And I was like, I want to lean on these things. And I know that I've got buy-in on the other side when they watch the footage. That's something that you learn really well in the commercial world, which, you know, obviously we're doing branded content and you say, you know, I'm with superlative also. Exactly. And uh, one of the biggest things that they taught me to ask in the phone calls with the agency is what are you looking for in this treatment? Like, what is the thing you're most worried about that you want, right. that you're excited to hear a director's point of view on? Because sometimes, you know, Matt and I talk about this all the time. Sometimes they give you pretty much the commercial storyboard already before they even have a director. And so you're like, should I reinvent the storyboards or maybe, oh, they really think the casting could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Or, they really or think maybe that- they want me to punch up the writing a little bit or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so the challenge. Them- that's the challenge in episodic because like you might get by virtue of your availability or whatever, the most basic episode of the show. And if you do, then you deliver the most basic episode of the show, you know, with hopefully with like some flashes of brilliance, if there's an opportunity, but you can also like, like the Silicon Valley I got, I just happened to get an episode that happened to allow me to go and shoot a Mad Max promo you know, oh, did you do the Rust Fest? Yeah, I did that. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, and so nice. like, but if if I would have booked the one before or after, it would have been like ma- master. Yeah, coverage. the guys in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have one last technical question about TV directing. I promise, and then I'll, I'll stop uh, asking I, you. But I'm off. And I, another thing, I'm. It's kind of crazy. I've never even thought about this before. But you know, when you you're shadowing on ballers or directing Silicon Valley or mixed dish. And Matt, I'm actually curious if you would know the answer to this too. Is there like a format for a shot list for each show or is it just, cause when I make oh, my shot list, like yeah. I'm doing this commercial, right? That's why I'm here in Kentucky there. Like when I make a shot list, I just go one a one B one C and then two a two a like for the next little sequence. Um, but you know, in com- and in commercial, sometimes it's like one Oh one, one Oh two, one Oh three. But I kind of just made up the way I write my the shot way you lists. like to do it, yeah. And I think that most directors they just have their own way, right? But but when you're plugged into this big system, season seven of some show, yeah, you don't want to send your showrunner the shot list, and they're like, oh, what what the fuck is this? We want to <laughs> yeah. we know this isn't even in Excel, Pete. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I feel like as long as it 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 makes sense, like you know, I use an app called Hollywood Shot Designer. And what I do is immediately request the floor plans from the production designer or the art department. And then I can import those floor plans into the app and I can place cameras and characters on it. And so with that, I try and think about it from a cascading perspective of like, here's my master. And like, so I, and if I know there's two cameras, like you can make the cameras different colors and all that stuff and label the shots. So I'll usually be like, all right, well, I'll get my, if I can. And then the other question is, are we cross shooting or are we directional? I'll say, all right, I can get my master and my 50, 50 in the first setups. Um, then Hopefully, though, on some shows, I'll try and have a functional master. So like there's a 50-50, but maybe the master folds into like another bit of coverage. And then it'll be like, all right, what's next? I'll get, you know, my medium. Right. Like one master to 50-50-3 over on Rainbow. Yeah. In this app, it's, it's pretty cool because in the order of how you 
Like if I lay all the, if I lay them all at once or if I lay them one by one, it'll order the shots by the order where I type in the shot details. So by virtue of following that kind of cascading idea, they end up being in order of coverage. Right. Unless and, the DP. And, and the app actually is what spits out the shot list. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so there is, you know, the format of, you know, shot, shot designer, pro. shot designer. Yeah. And yeah. do you write in the scene description, like, you know, rainbow says this line and then turns or turns away and walks away. Like that's a great question. Put that type of stuff in there. I'm a little OCD. So I do, I, I do do that. Like I have the, I have the character blocking and then like, I'll make little annotations about like, she might sit here on this line uh or that's um, nice yeah yeah action on a line is really action so i can kind of i've just learned that i i want to have the fewest reference materials as possible and so even if i have that on the script if i'm doing a rehearsal and going through the blocking i want to be able to be like uh maybe on this line you sit and then maybe here you know or maybe we put this prop over here and i can just kind of look at a top down blueprint of options i guess and are you are you sharing this with production as well is this something that anyone if they're like hey you know it'd be helpful for me to have pete shot list or is it up for grabs or is it something that you kind of if they if they ask i'm not you know what's interesting i i feel like there's a there's typically a reluctance for a director to do it right whether it's you know you don't want to feel like people think you aren't prepared or think you don't know what you're doing or you're just kind of maintaining some level of like, you know, in the old days, like the DP was like, oh, it'll look good. There were no monitors that people could give feedback on, right? And so the shot list is kind of the director's version of that. Right, then an executive can say, hey, I noticed you don't have a clean single and we really want one. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. But I feel like, let them look at it. And, you know, when I did Station 19, it was a requirement because on a show like that, they've had enough war stories that, you know, you can't assume that someone's prepared because if they're not, that become the day can spiral out of control. And then you have an incomplete episode and you're going over. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not anti-sharing it because as a writer, I can appreciate why they want it. But it is nice when you go to some shows and they, and they're just like, what are we doing now? <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're like, well, I was thinking about this and that and that. And that you know? Sure. You know, it's so funny. I think one of the main advantages of doing a show like this is that like you get to learn how other directors do it. And I'm always dumbfounded by the idea that people wouldn't shot list and share it when it's something where you're you're coming into a new environment like this. Like if you're trying to build trust, there's like a few things that feel like obvious to the point of like, yeah, I can't, I genuinely can't fathom how some people wouldn't do it. But I guess there is that world of directors who are just kind of used to walking in and being like, all right, well, put the camera over there or whatever. I've got to tee off in, you know, six hours. So let's get this done. You know, I kind of have the opposite problem sometimes where I like plan. I, I want everyone to see all the work I've done. Right. So I'll make <laughs> yeah, these yeah. diagrams and I'll make these, yeah, I can't tell you how animatic. many times people have rolled their eyes at my diagrams. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that, it is interesting, though. You kind of learn. I've kind of learned how much people want to hear from me, you know, like so like there's some actors where I'm like, 
oh, you don't really want to hear shit from me. Like, you just want want to be like, all right, I I was thinking you start the scene here and end there and, like, let me see what you figure out. And they don't give a fuck about any Freudian conversation. (laughs) Um, You know, but then others want to debate the nuances of why they hold the briefcase in their left hand. And you kind of have to be prepared to converse with them in the language that they offer. But it, yeah, that's a, you know, it's like you do, it's like you do all this prep to then almost make it disappear and seem as if you're, you, you're just a cool, relaxed person. You know what I mean? Because you, yeah, it's this instinct because you want to be able to be relaxed. You want to be able to shoot the shit on set and like, not like, you know, be like, I can't talk to you, actor. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to shoot scene 12, you know? So you do all of this beforehand And then it's almost like you mask the level of obsessiveness that you've put into being prepared so you can seem like a guy who's just cool and relaxed and going with the flow. Do you see like kind of Black Lives Matter and everything that's going on in the world affecting our business and kind of what you do? I mean, you're, you know, we talked to a lot of people that are working on small things and commercials and passion project and it's much easier to see how those things are affected but when you're kind of part of these big studio things yeah you're part of the machine yeah like a train that's moving do you see uh, both covid and kind of the new social like you what you call the awareness of racism all of a sudden um affecting the things that you're gonna be doing you know i feel like there's a lot of well clearly there's a lot of conversation happening There's a lot of what I would call lip service, although it might not be viewed as such by those giving it. Um, But I think the road ahead, because as much as like I may be on these particular shows, I'm actually I'm like a visiting head chef. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Where like right. it's it's like okay, yeah, I cooked the meal tonight, and you could blame me if the shit's burnt. It's like, not your restaurant, <laughs> but it's not my restaurant, right? And so I I feel like what needs to happen is a pivot or an evolution in the creative environment to allow real feedback, because oftentimes, and I you know I've been on shows where I'm like. Mm. You know what I mean? But like, I'm not necessarily in the position. Nobody's trying to hear that shit from me. It's It's been written over the past three months. And obviously it could change, but there's just not an environment where they're willing to accept it. And it may not even only be me. It'll be the actors as well. I've done shows where, you know, I can't tell you, man. Like I've done shows where You know, I've gotten into really nuanced conversations with the actors about like, okay, yes, what's happening right now is not real or fully accurate, but there's an audience of people, Black people who are watching this, who are extracting new esteem building moments from it, even though it's not actually totally honest or real. And it's like, that's bullshit because we should be able to have a conversation and be like, hey, writer, hey, showrunner, like that right now is not actually like 
reflective of what this moment would be like in the same way that, you know, if we were talking about a war movie and I was like, yo, like it wasn't like that in the war, you wouldn't be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm writing. And and I think there's, if there's an environment that evolves where people can participate willingly and without risk to refining and enhancing cultural moments, I think it elevates the work that's out there. And then as you have more diverse creators making more work, allowing them to create the work that they know um, from their experience. Yeah, that's interesting. Just to make sure I understand what you're saying is like, you've been on shows, maybe like a show like Blackish or Grownish or Mixedish or something where they're... Or a ton of other shows. Or, or a ton of, <laughs> where, right. But you're, but you're talking specifically about like a show where there'll be like a Black person is doing something and it's it's and it doesn't speak to your experience basically it's kind of cleaned up for the it's aspirational maybe in a yeah yeah it'll 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 be you know i won't i won't name shows but it'll be a black person with a black storyline with something that is like at the end of the day when we look at what's happening this is being packaged for how the white audience experiences it's a whitewashed storyline basically exactly or or it'll be like you know you want to avoid having this character be black because you think that might say something, but now you're giving it to a character that's not, but the specifics of what you've written for that character are actually black. And so now you've trivialized a very specific experience and journey because you thought you were doing something. You see what I'm saying? Like, like mm-hmm. it, it, it's right, a right. It's You're a, trying to be progressive maybe, or like sensitive and it's just ends up backwards. Right. Yeah. 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 Something that you were alluding to that I think is a thing that I've been thinking about a lot is like when you're talking about being able to just communicate clearly with people. I think there's a lot of anxiety about not wanting to come off as like difficult, quote unquote, you know? And so I hope that one of the earlier things that happens now that white people have discovered racism to steal your joke is that like maybe maybe people are a little bit more aware that they don't know what they don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe people are, hopefully people are going to be a little bit better at listening is, is like a, a good baby step. Right. Whereas before, fingers crossed, I don't know, you know, but I hope that happens. I would I would hope. I mean, look, every show I go to, I have to listen to what these actors have discovered about their characters because they've done them 10, 12, 100, 200 times. You know, like it's it's always about listening and and giving room for, you know, at the end of the day, like I, I used to tell my students when I taught at NYU and I'd be like, look, you can lie in your personal life. You can lie to everybody, you know, but when you sit down and you write some shit and you go and you direct it, you gotta be honest, you know, like, otherwise what's the point. And that just means taking the half a second to ask the question of, is this accurate and true? And if that makes your job more difficult, so be it. What you write will be better. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I think the, Obviously, there's racism that we're talking about, but also just this whole idea, you know, with Me Too and with even like COVID and stuff, like just the idea that the people at the top don't necessarily know (laughs) the right thing is like important. And 
I like the way you phrase that. It's kind of about listening, you know, because you see even like a story like Harvey Weinstein and stuff, everybody knew about it, right? Everyone, but no one dared say anything. And if somebody said something, people said like, you're fired, you know? And so like, maybe this kind of led by Black Lives Matter, but even on a bigger scale is like, hey, you know, like some of the shit you're doing is, <laughs> you can't do that anymore. Right, right. And just because the people at the top are cool with it doesn't mean that it's okay, you know? And and at the end of the day too, there's like, if, if we're looking for reasons, like if you want to get outside of just what's right, there's a there's a wealth of stories that are waiting to be explored and new ways to engage audiences like I like people there's money to be made man there's money right? to be made you know what I mean like <laughs> yeah. and, and if that if that's your fucking driver then great you know what I mean like because like even if you take Watchmen like you know and you're and you anchored it in this very specific you know historical reality of Tulsa like which recently came up thanks to 45 right um but like that they went there I, I don't know the politics of what's going on there but it surely was something that they could explore that had not been over overdone mm-hmm. you know what i mean right. and, right. Sure. and they based the premium cable show on that because it, it had universal storytelling anchors that are emotional and impactful and allow you to have nuance in whatever you're trying to say. One of the coolest examples of that I've heard and on a different podcast was Malcolm Spellman, who was a producer on Empire, was talking about Ryan Coogler uh-huh. and Creed. And he said, I mean, how long had Rocky been out? And no one had thought, like, let's, what's the story of Apollo Creed's kid? You know? Right. Like, that's such a unique viewpoint that when you pitch it and make it, you're like, damn, this is like, has such a giant appeal to everyone that watches it, but it took a specific point of view to even think of it. And it was yeah. always there. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, awesome. Okay. So the very last thing I want to talk to you about is your podcast. What, oh, good. Uh, what, what are you exploring in it and why should people listen to it? It's a podcast about storytelling and why we'll always need stories and what makes uh, a good director. And as I interview folks, I'm kind of discovering it's like Mark Marin's WTF where we just talk. <laughs> um, and I feel like much like this, I, I feel like there's a beauty when you talk at an, for an extended amount of time the the sheen just begins to go away the polish begins to go away and you get a real sense of the person you're talking to um but overwhelmingly whether it's like actors or directors or executives or writers or showrunners i'm just really trying to like get a sense of who they are and how they got into the industry and why story is so important in anchoring society you know so far we've had like you know, Theo Travers, a friend of mine from NYU, a lot of like the journey that I've shared is kind of shared by my initial guests, um, Issa Rae, uh, Dorian Missick. More will be kind of announced soon, but I just interviewed Rob McElhenney from Always Sunny and Mythic Quest. And um, Which I saw you did a Mythic Quest, right? Yeah, I did one. I, I, I was scheduled to do three after All Rise when we got shut down. Um so, when you're scheduled to do those things, does that mean you will get to do them after this or is everything up in the air? Pretty. I mean, it seems like it will happen, you know, like now it become now it'll be like a scheduling thing. Like, right, right. One, they want you. Maybe you aren't available. Right. right. Yeah. But I but I'll still be they'll still remain like priority position for me because I'm already booked. All rise. They went ahead and did a new finale. So hopefully 
Um, that would probably transition into hopefully something in season two, but it'll just be about making the schedules work. The challenge moving forward is that it seems like there will just be fewer directors on each show and directors will be doing more episodes. Um, oh, right, right. But, you know. You you mean as a result of COVID, basically. As a, yeah. Right, right. Like I talked to an actor friend, uh, one of the stars of A Million Little Things, and she just directed her own short. And she was telling me, like, it looks like they have their producing director and then three directors will do the totality of the, the whole 18 thing. or 20 episodes right. rather right. than like 13 of us. Right. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. But yeah, you almost, out. It's, it's like a show bubble, basically. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy with the podcast. Like, I'm glad to get to talk with you guys. And if your audience is uh, interested in kind of hearing people's journeys and kind of getting that director perspective as well from folks who kind of, you know, Issa talks about hiring directors and I'll get some executives to talk about why they don't hire directors. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. it, it's a fun time. And how do they find it? Is it everywhere podcasts can be found? It, it's everywhere podcasts can be found and on YouTube, uh, Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And then, and they can go to your, I listen to it on your website, drctr.video. Yes, indeed. Yep. Director D- minus the vowels. Minus the vowels. <laughs> there you go. Unpaid endorsements. You know what? You know what I'm going to endorse? My wife and I are on, we've watched all three episodes of I May Destroy You on HBO. Um, from Oh, Nicole yeah. Nicole. It's new, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And she did Chewing Gum, which was on Netflix. It deals very artistically and creatively and thoughtfully with um, sexual assault from a woman's point of view. And it's, it's just really good. It's really smart. You have to work, you have to think, um, it's well put together. Um, it's directed by one guy across 12 episodes. I don't remember his name, but he directed Luther, um, which is another great show, um, from London. And, um, I highly recommend that. Uh, I hate to do two shows in a row, but, uh, I've kind of really, really, really been enjoying the great on Hulu. Oh yeah. Seen that? Yeah, yeah. It's by the same person who did the same screenwriter who wrote The Favorite. Oh, uh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's slightly less weird than The Favorite, but way, but yeah. still pretty weird. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's definitely gory. I kind of wish it was less gory. <laughs> like I usually have a stomach for that, but there there's just a lot of dead bodies um <laughs> in a lot of scenes. But uh it's like so funny. It's kind of like a funnier Game of Thrones but told from a central point of view and it's Elle Fanning plays Catherine the Great and she's, she marries Emperor Peter. And it says like, even in the title, it's called the great and there's an asterisk and it says it's an occasionally true story. So I think it's a very much dramatized, but it's just so funny. I, everyone is British in it except for Elle Fanning. It's kind of like, they're all playing Russians, right? They're all playing Russians with British accents, speaking English, but it's just, it's so crazy because it's like, I don't know how true it is, but in this Russian court, it's just there's bears walking around. People are wrestling each other. People are shooting each other. People are just having sex in the hallways with each other's wives. Like there's no rules to anything, but it's about um, Elle Fanning, who's Catherine the Great, like kind of trying to like her rise to power, basically rise to power. Yeah. yeah, Over Russia. And it's another really interesting thing is like, the cast of Russians are every race. Like there's every race of people and in the court and the everything there's like, it's kind of like 
Tarantino-esque bizarrity, history breaking, but it's really entertaining and and it's really plotty too um, in a way that's fun. It's kind of like if Sansa Stark was like really funny um, and smart. <laughs> yeah. So it's on Hulu, the great, and they're one hour episodes too, which is, it's, it's nice to watch a one hour episode that has like some comedy in it. <laughs> well, you guys, um, you've both really outdone me in my, in endorsing smart, classy worthwhile endeavors <laughs> i'm gonna endorse maybe maybe the dumbest show i've ever endorsed in all of uh this uh podcast uh do you guys know the floor is lava on netflix it is a game show where teams cross through rooms filled with hot lava quote-unquote oh, like for it's, real lava it's well it's not for real it's like disgusting red water um, and it's just like filled with like themed furniture that they're trying to climb across to get to, you know, if all three of them get to the end, then they score three points or whatever. It's like adult double dare. It's very simple. It's very dumb. And I've watched all of it. Like kind of like a wipeout. Thing? It's kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's like wipeout, but with like a little bit more of a throwbacky sort of vibe. So, but it literally it's like adults like jumping from the sofa to the chandelier to the dining room table. It's called The Floor is Lava, and it is very dumb. So if you want to kill time <laughs> and just, like, let your brain turn to mush, which, you know, look, you know, these days it's kind of nice to have that in your back pocket. The Floor is Lava is your backup plan for for just being a dumb idiot and looking at your phone and half-watching TV for a minute. Yeah. I like, you guys yeah. got me going to have me busy for a few weeks. I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, if you want to find out more about what we talked about with Pete, we'll link to his website, uh, drctr.video, and all the other stuff we talked about. You can go to justshootitpod.com. You can follow us on all social media. We're at justshootitpod. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at OKaplan. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. You're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Additional ad music by music bed leave us a voicemail and an itunes review 2626 shoot one if you have a question for us uh and we'll catch you on the next one everyone thanks thanks everyone bye hey this is rob McElhenney, and you are listening to let's shoot with pete chapman How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T. 
M-O-N. All right, so that was my interview on the Just Shoot It podcast with Matt Enloe and Oren Kaplan. I hope you will join us. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, first of all. And now I hope you will join us next week for episode 12 of Let's Shoot It with Pete Chapman, where our special guest will be coming from the craft position of cinematographer. And we will have on the podcast the talented DP Paula Guidobro. I worked with her on Gronish uh, on the first episode of TV I ever directed, Gronish 105, and again on Gronish 112 uh, in season one. Uh, really, really proud, actually, of... of uh, the scene I mentioned in the uh, podcast with uh, Matt and Oren from Gronish uh, that I really thought was a great instance of directing and being able to kind of put a stamp on a moment was shot by Paula. And so uh, I continued to work with her later on Insecure season three, and she has gone on to do feature films and uh, shows like Little America, but she also shot season one and two of Barry. So I look forward to getting into a conversation uh, on her journey from Mexico City to Hollywood as one of the most sought after cinematographers working. So until next week, stay safe, be blessed and go shoot something.